As we get ready to read our passage this morning from Matthew chapter 12, uh, I think it's important for us to put the moment in the narrative in context, what we're about to read, where have we been? As we look at this passage, remember what's happened. Jesus has faced extended, repeated, unrelenting assaults on his authority. Each time, what does he do? He turned the, turns the attacks of the Pharisees back on them, right? And so two weeks ago, Jesus warned the Pharisees of being so hard-hearted that they would cease to even recognize the work of God among them. Last week, what did he do? He explained to them the call of God to actually repent and actually follow him and actually have radically changed hearts, not simply to pretend, not simply to to go along with things. And in response to Jesus' warning and his call to repent, what does he hear this morning? He hears a new demand in response. And so that's where our text begins in verse 38. So our scripture passage is Matthew 12, 38 to 45. Hear now the word of God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. God, give us hearts that are open to hearing from you. Prepare our hearts to hear the comforts of Christ, but also the warnings of Christ. Whatever it is that we need, whatever shoes that it is we stand in this morning, would you give us what our need is today? Through your Holy Spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When you think of really stubborn people, I'm sure each of you has someone in your life that fits that bill, right? Someone that comes to mind. Um, For some of us, it may be us. But we all know people who are stubborn. Um, The sort of person who will disagree with you no matter what you say, right? If you say the sky is blue, they will say it's red. Uh, If you say something is up, they will say it's down, right? Surely you've known people like this before. Um, I ran into this in probably, probably the sharpest form I've ever run into it when I was getting my bachelor's degree in philosophy. 
uh, what you probably, you know, there, there are just jokes about philosophy students. Um, and they're sort, of a, they're sort of a type, you know. Philosophy class draws a type. Two types of people, generally. I, I think about the students in my, my class at Grand Canyon and those who were in there with me. And you have two types of people, at least, at least I think. One is the honest student who wants to learn how to think better. Now, to be honest, I think all the students think that's them. But then there's another type. And the other type is the argumentative person who is looking for tools who will do anything to win an argument, even if it requires saying crazy things. Even if it requires saying crazy things. They want to know the names of all of the logical fallacies so they can shut down the other person in class. But when they get pressed, they will go wherever you send them in the argument. Um, in debating circles, there's this, there's this philosophical tool. It's called reductio ad absurdum. And that's just fancy Latin word for reducing to the absurd. And so in the argument, what you do is you've got this goal, right? The goal of this line of argument is to take what this person says and take them to crazy town, which is where their argument's supposed to lead. Right? You're, you're showing them that what they believe terminates somewhere absurd that they don't want to be. Right? That's the point of using this kind of argument. Well, on more than one occasion, our class would descend into pandemonium, and the professor was fine letting that happen because he thought out of the pandemonium, truth will rise. And so in the midst of, of one of our classes, one of the students defended a wild point of view only to have someone show them that their view led to somewhere that they don't want to go. Um, I think at one point we were in a class full of, of Christian students. We, this is a Christian school. And I remember a student being shown this, that given their view on a particular issue, I think it was God's knowledge of the future. I think this student was, was saying God doesn't know everything that's going to happen in the future. He doesn't have exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. Or actually the student was saying that God does have exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. And then he was shown then that given his view of the future, that, that God must not actually know the future. And that they were trying to get him to give up his view of God's exhaustive foreknowledge. Anyway, it doesn't matter if you don't, don't follow what I was just saying, because I don't know if I follow what I was just saying. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that the student, uh, that everybody was convinced, we've just shown this student, that they are going to affirm something they don't want to affirm. And so very satisfied that they were going to give up their view. Instead, this other student surprised all of us by saying, well, then I guess God doesn't know the future. And he was fine going there. And everybody else in the class considered that an unacceptable conclusion for a Christian to hold. Um, but the student stuck to his guns and followed his view even to its absurd destination. And I remember when we graduated that this student claimed to still believe God didn't know the future. So he decided to go ahead and go to crazy town and, and make that his new home. <laughs> it is very frustrating to debate someone who has no boundaries and who will even go to the absurd places to defend their views. The Jewish leaders are these types of debate opponents for Jesus, right? Just, they are impossible to pin down, unwilling to yield, unwilling to lose, always wiggling away at the last possible second. 
Jesus shows them that their views are going to lead them to absurd places. He's already done it, actually. I don't know if you've noticed this. Jesus has done the reductio ad absurdum on them multiple times. Jesus has shown them that given their view, that uh, their view of spiritual realities, that means demons cast out demons. They don't care. They're fine acknowledging a world where demons cast out other demons. He, he has shown them that given their view, you can't even show mercy to someone on the Sabbath. He assumes this is going to be an absurd view to them. And what do they do? They say, sure, you can't show mercy on the Sabbath. They're fine going to the crazy place, right? They just repeatedly dodge and weave, even if it means they have to jump in the bushes to do it. They will go there. And then in the midst of this, they make a request to Jesus, give us another sign. Give us another sign. And so Jesus responds. And he responds to them by condemning them and uh, uh, refusing to oblige their request. He's not going to do that. He's not their trained monkey. He is not a band taking requests from the audience. They want a sign, but they won't get it. Jesus has no mercy for them at this point. It's, It's interesting because in Scripture, honest questions asked in good faith are not turned away. Honest doubts are answered. Uh, Jude Jude 21 says that you should have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, Jesus meets doubting Thomas. uh, And what does he do for Thomas? He shows him his hands and feet. Um, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus gave his people many proofs following his resurrection. See, good faith desires for evidence are not bad and they're not condemned in scripture. And yet Jesus brings the hammer down today. And that's because the initial question is not a question asked in good faith. What do they do? They request this thing. It seems so simple. They say, we wish to see a sign from you. Um, I remember years ago listening to a debate between an atheist and a Christian. And the atheist recalled this very passage that we're looking at today. And, And he said that Jesus can't stand up to the scrutiny And so here these free thinkers are and they're coming to Jesus and they just want some evidence. But because Jesus can't stand up to the scrutiny, he won't do it. He won't answer their questions. And the atheist's mistaken point was that in this passage, Jesus was turning away honest questions. But that's absolutely not what this is. This is not a series of people who are coming to Jesus and just saying, oh, Jesus, if I only just knew one more thing. If I just knew this one last thing, I would believe in you. That's not what this is. Not when you, when you look at all that came before, because what have we seen before? They've seen signs. It is not like they've been waiting for them. They've seen them happening. They've been happening. They saw the man with the withered hand healed. Right there in church, they were so angry that Jesus healed this man. They were angry with a miracle that they saw. They saw a sign. They saw the blind and mute man healed. They had a whole debate about it. Jesus has given them signs. He has given them. The fact that they ask for another on top of all the others means that they have absolutely rejected him. They've rejected the miracles he's done already. They've rejected his miracles. They've rejected his ministry. His answers bounce right off of them. 
the signs that he does bounce right off of them. At, at this point, they are showing that they are invincible to any sign that he gives. The question, in the question and in their hearts, Jesus goes deeper and he says, something damaged is going on here. Your loves are all wrong and your hearts are all wrong. He actually pinpoints them. He makes this very personal. He says, you're not really asking for evidence at all. You are fishing for excuses at this point. What will they see? If he did a miracle, what would they do? They would find the flaw in the miracle, as they've done with all of these. Oh, he did it in the wrong place. He did it at the wrong time. He said the wrong words. He said the wrong prayer. He looked the wrong direction. He wasn't pointed towards the temple. You could imagine just the imaginative list of excuses that they will always have in their back pocket. Today's passage is what's sometimes called a testing story. Uh, Another way of thinking about it is that it's a riddle with an explanation. And that riddle and that explanation unfolds in, in three parts today, which we'll set out and look at. First this morning is the sign of Jonah. Second is the judgment by enemies. And then third is the return of the demons. Um, this is Jesus' final debate with the Pharisees for several chapters. So he's going to set aside his debate with them after this. But before we get to that break in the narrative, let's look at how this transpires here. First, we have the sign of Jonah. You know, we've already seen the ugliness of the Pharisees' request. You know, they want a sign, and they've seen sign after sign already. They just want to keep requesting it and just keep making the requests. They want something more. This request reminds me of uh, a, a, a comment years ago by the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell. Um, Bertrand Russell was asked what he would do if he found himself standing before the throne of God one day at the judgment seat. And Russell's very glib response was, I would probably ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? And the reason this passage reminds me of Russell is that Russell was surrounded by evidence on every side, all his life. Even by this point in, in his life, he was an old man. He had seen a lot. Uh, above, beside, below, and within, Russell was surrounded by evidence. Psalm 19 reminds us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Russell was like the person standing in a clear meadow and complaining that there seems to be no oxygen. That's, that's Russell. In fact, there's no one on earth who could say, I have no evidence, I had no evidence. See, the problem is not a lack of evidence, it's what we do with it. Um, we receive it, and so many times we suppress the truth. We, we see the evidence of design all around us. We see the beauty of creation that screams out, this is not random. This is not on accident. This has design. We can see the miracle of existence, of the intricacy of life. We see the wonder of the human eye and the human body of childbirth. And we're amazed by the perfection of how they all fit together. The wonders of the chemistry of our body. How even the slightest uh, drop in excretion of certain hormones into our bodies can send us down a, a death loop. So many little things must work together for all of us to be able to survive and they do on a regular basis. 
We sense the moral demands of God within our own hearts. We feel the yearning for the transcendent, for that which is beyond us. We feel it in all of our hearts. We know that there are universal things that we can't see, like mathematics. Those things are inescapable. We have our hearts stirred by music in a way that goes beyond simple biology and survivability. All of these things pointing to the Creator from every direction and every angle. The world is actually a very dangerous place if you want to be an atheist. Your faith in a self-caused, self-organizing universe, world, and human race is constantly under assault every time you take a deep breath or feel a moral impulse. It is a hard thing to resist God when His evidence is pressing and blasting at you, through you, and under you, wherever you go, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And the evidence we see is just the tip of the iceberg. It stares us right in the face. It is real. It is objective. It is obvious. It's easy to interpret. And yet we say, hmm, if only there was evidence. Why don't we see? Why don't we see it? Why don't we acknowledge it? It is because at the end of the day, and this is Jesus' answer, we do not want to. It's called confirmation bias, right? If we are convinced of something, then anything we see that fits that narrative looks to us like definitive proof of that thing. And anything that doesn't fit our narrative gets filtered out. Bertrand Russell imagines that he will say to God, Sir, why did you not give me better evidence? It reminds me so much of the Pharisees here. Just one more piece of evidence, Jesus. Just one more request. Just one more. God does give evidence, but he offers it on his own terms. Jesus shows them signs. He's given signs. He's actually given them what they've they asked for already. Now he's had enough, and this is what he says. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, I can imagine that this is not satisfying to the Pharisees. Uh, And you may be thinking, why doesn't he just keep trying? Why doesn't he just keep going for as long as they're there? If, he, if, if, if he's got their attention, if he's got them as his audience, maybe he could just keep going until they're blown away and they can't deny it anymore. Well, again, you get to the question of what will they do with each sign that they see? What have they done with each sign that they see before? I think it is very easy to argue that the sign will not produce the result we imagine that it will produce. Part of the issue is authority, right? Because in making this request, what are they doing? They are making themselves the judge. They're setting themselves up in the place of judgment because they think they're the authority. Jesus, do it for us so that we can declare it, so that we can decide. We're the authorities here. Prove yourself to us. We shall evaluate you, Jesus. And yet, what authority could Jesus actually appeal to that's higher than his own authority? What is the value of their authority? What is the value of their judgment on him? The Pharisees aren't the authorities they think they are. If he was desperate and, and groveling to prove himself to them, 
if he got down on his hands and knees, if he would only believe who I am, if you'd only believe who I am, he would be affirming their sins that they are higher and they are greater than him. At this point, they're treating him more like a trained monkey than as the Messiah because they've already decided. But, but the second reason he gives them this answer, right? the re- second reason why he doesn't oblige them, it has to do with the nature of the question. Requests for evidence are not necessarily sinful, but they are often a mask for seeking to not uh, for unbelief seeking to justify itself. Often the request is a mask for unbelief seeking to justify itself. Now I mentioned before there are honest requests for evidence made in good faith in scripture and those requests are responded to, those requests are answered, they're obliged. But often the question is a pretext to continue in unbelief. See, Jesus knows these men, and he isn't about to give them any more. Instead, he refuses to answer their demands. He says the evidence will come on God's terms. They will get the sign of Jonah. He points out the importance of Jonah, even if it goes past them, right? Jonah was in the fish for three days. Jesus will be in the ground for three days. He's predicting his death and resurrection for them as we speak. A sign will be given, but it's not a sign for the Pharisees, it is a sign for those who are willing to hear it. The Pharisees don't get special treatment, they don't get special evidence, they don't get special proof. They will get the same proof as everyone else. They will get the resurrection. Now please understand, this is not a passage about honest searchers being turned away by stonewalling Jesus. Right? This is not a passage that tells people there are no reasons to believe in Christ. This is not a passage that tells us not to care about whether or not Jesus is actually the Messiah. This is not a passage that pushes us to blindly believe. It's not a passage that teaches us that there is something wrong with wanting evidence. No, this is a passage about hard hearts that will not receive the truth no matter what they're given. This is a passage about people who have decided in advance not to listen and not to be open to what God is saying. If you are a searcher, if you're someone who's who's looking for evidence, I will tell you this, and you may not know this because you may not have been here time and time again and heard me tell my story, but I was once an atheist whose mind was changed by the Holy Spirit causing me to respond to good arguments and persuasive evidence that the resurrection of Jesus really happened in real space and real time. I'd heard those arguments before, I wasn't compelled by them, but then God used those same arguments to change my heart and change my mind. So God, God uses evidence as part of how he deals with hard hearts. I think there's value in the arguments. There's value in the evidence. But the evidence alone is insufficient. We see that here. Something needs to happen in the heart so that we respond to what we see and so that we love the result and we love the message. If you are somebody who's looking, you're somebody who's asking questions, you're somebody who wants to know whether these things are true, the answers are out there if you are open to it and if you're interested in hearing the arguments. And God is not opposed to your search if it is an open and honest search. 
he is opposed to people asking questions as a precept, as, as a pretext to keep not believing and to continue resisting. And only you know where you are. You, only you know where your heart is on all of this. Are you committed to resisting? When you hear the evidence, your commitment will continue. You will find a way not to like what you see and not to be convinced by what you see. If you're a Christian, please do not misunderstand this passage. This is not a passage, and this is not a a message that is saying to you to shut down questioners. If anything, the message is to welcome the open-minded and people who have honest questions and to answer questions the best that you can. We should be eager to answer honest inquiries and questions that are asked in good faith. I promise you this, Jesus can stand up to the scrutiny. It's not like when you look, the answer is going to be paper thin and you're going to realize that you've been standing on a house of cards this whole time. It is fine to press in with the questions. And there are answers to questions that are asked in fairness and in genuine openness. But we need to be wise to know the difference. Second, though, we come to the judgment by enemies. Look at verses 41 and 42 again. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he's really laying it on heavy when he says this. In verses 41, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. There's this contrast between how close this thing is and how far she was willing to travel to come and get it. And Jesus is like, I'm looking at you right now. It's right in front of you. So Jesus has responded to the scribes and the Pharisees He says he will give them a sign. He's actually saying yes to them. He's not saying no. He's not stonewalling them. But he's also saying they're not going to get what they ask for the way they ask for it. So he he turns the tables almost as if to say, you keep watching me and picking me apart, but you are actually the one who will be examined on the last day. So that the tables are turning. And to make matters more offensive, He revisits what he said in verse 20 of this chapter. If you remember a few weeks ago in the text, we heard Jesus say that it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for this generation, right? He's he's talking about these pagan cities and these Gentile cities in Gentile territory, far from the Jews' territory, and he says they are the ones who will judge the Jews. That's what he said, and it was very offensive, now, what does he do? He picks Nineveh. Like, if you, if you think a Jewish person has a problem with Tyre and Sidon, then just look back in Jewish history and ask, hey, who are some of the big baddies in your history? And they're going to remember the people who would grab them with fish hooks and drag them away and put them in nets and drag them away and who would torture them horribly. I don't need to run through the things the Ninevites would do to these people. But one of the most hated cities in all of of Israel's history was Nineveh. And Jesus says, that nation will stand as witness at God's judgment seat. Why? Because when Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching, they repented. 
And yet here Jesus says, a greater prophet than Jonah has come and God's own chosen people won't respond. It is such an awful contrast. I want you to think about this. I'm often struck by how bland Jonah's preaching was. Think of how bland Jonah's preaching was. Think of, usually the preacher is hopefully somebody who really embodies the message, who loves the message, and it comes through, and hopefully there's a hint of passion in what's being said. And if you think about it, Jonah was probably the most reluctant prophet in all of history. He enters Nineveh covered in fish puke, and he says, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then he turns around and he sits on a hill and he waits for them all to die in a hail of fire and brimstone, right? That is his plan. This is the the passionate preaching of Jonah. Um, He, this is the one, is one prophet who wanted to see the bad thing happen. He wanted to go to the city, say it's going to happen, then he's going to turn around and he's already decided how the city is going to respond. And yet that half-hearted, unmotivated preaching turned the hearts of the people who were not God's people and in doing so saved the city. So they got the, I'm just going to just really trash on Jonah for a minute, the saddest, laziest sermon anyone has ever heard and they turned. And then here the Pharisees are, they are exposed to the most enthusiastic, dynamic, loving, amazing, big-hearted, best illustrations you ever heard, right? The best preacher that Israel has ever seen, a preacher who, I can't cry in my sermons. I I grew up with a, a pastor who cried in his sermons. I remember Ken Burns cried uh, Ken Burns, I'm sorry. Ken Burns makes documentaries. <laughs> My first church, I remember, is a free Methodist church. Ken Burnham cried in every sermon, and he meant it. I could tell he wasn't an actor. He loved the message that he preached. I don't quite have the tears. The tears just won't come. Um, but here Jesus is. He weeps over the city. He weeps over the city when it won't repent. If you want to hear the most, the biggest, best presentation of God's truth you could ever ask for, you could never do better than the preaching of Jesus. And they are there for it, they see it, and they respond with hearts that are harder than the city of Nineveh. And this theme of hard hearts surfaces repeatedly here. Because it is not that they are missing something. It is not that the preaching is just too bland. It is not that there's anything else going on here. They've got everything. They've got everything. And on the one hand, there's a a lesson here about the grace of God, right? Because it it cuts both ways. On the one hand, we we receive the grace of God and, and one person receives it with a glad heart and another person scoffs. Um, the way Charles Spurgeon put it, he said, the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. That's what the grace of God is, right? The grace of God is the sun that shines down. Are you wax or are you clay? God's word can turn needy, pagan hearts, and it can harden cruel but orthodox religious hearts. Third, this morning, we come to the return of the demons. After he said these things, he's condemned to Israel for not responding to the new Jonah. 
He's told them that they are worse than Nineveh. He then tells a story beginning in verse 43. He says, when the unclean spirit has, passed, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also, will it be with this generation? I think a lot of times Christians are very puzzled by this passage, right? This is a weird story that Jesus tells here about a demon flying out over space and time and coming back into a house. There's a metaphor here, and I think sometimes it it gets lost on us. But but keep the context in mind. This is not a random story. Don't separate this from the passage before. There's a reason I'm preaching these both together. Um, This is not a random story. Jesus relates this story of the return of the unclean spirit because to him, this story illustrates the spiritual danger facing this generation. The people he's talking to right now. This, This generation that's rejecting him even in the face of the testimony of scripture and the display of evidence. What's the story itself though? Well, Jesus is saying a person who's been liberated from a demonic spirit remains vulnerable to further possession if they remain vacant. That's the term he uses, vacant. The demon will leave for a while, go to the desert, and then return. And so Jesus' point is that it's not enough. It's not enough for a demon to be cast out, right? It's not enough for sin to be removed from a person. This person actually needs to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. Remember, exorcism was the occasion for the miracles in the first place. So it makes sense for him to use exorcism as his illustration here, right? He comes back and he tells them something they should know about themselves as the Jewish people. So the Jewish people in the parable are the person who's been freed from the demon, um, think about this. Jesus has, has been going through the regions of Israel, casting out demons, conquering Satan. He's bound the strong man, as we saw last week. But what happens if they receive these temporal blessings from Jesus? People are walking. The blind are seeing. The mute are speaking. The, the withered hands are, are healed. People can go back to work. What happens if they receive these temporal blessings from Jesus, but they don't actually follow him? What if they don't go where the miracles and the signs point? What if they just live off the benefits of having Jesus around, but they do not have him come within? The demons will return. The defeat of Satan in Israel will be very short-lived. To use Jesus' language in verse 44, the demon will say, I will return to my house that I left. And Jesus is saying that Israel will be powerless to stop its return apart from faith in him. We see in in verse 44, the house is even better than before. It's ready to be occupied. And we also see that the demon will find the house empty and ready for the taking. There, There are two things I want to draw out of this, if you'll bear with me. The first is relevant to Jesus's immediate situation. There have been warnings from Jesus already. He spoke about the unforgivable sin of having a hard heart toward the work of the Holy Spirit. He warned them about the seriousness of being so hardened toward God that they would confuse God with the devil. He warned them that they had forgotten God's love and forgotten God's mercy. 
and not embraced mercy, and instead they've embraced sacrifice. And he says, I want love and mercy, not sacrifice. He warned them for living for Jesus' benefits, but not for him. And his answer, the demons will return. The demons will return. And if I might just say, the years after Jesus' words bear this out. While there were certainly Jewish people who came to Christ, the book of Acts is a beautiful illustration of that. Israel as a whole rebelled against Christ, rebelled against Rome. The Roman general Titus came against Jerusalem with such great ferocity, he tore the temple down so that not one stone was sitting on top of another. The Jewish people were driven out into the nations, even as they had rejected the Lord Jesus. And that's why Peter calls Jesus the stone that the builders rejected. They had rejected him. They enjoyed the benefits of Jesus for a season. They enjoyed his miracles. And yet the Jewish people as a whole did in fact find the demon had been cast out and returned once again worse than ever. And they did not survive it. Jesus' words here prove true in Jewish history. But I want to note a broader principle that's at work here. I don't think this is helpful to us if all we're doing is studying history for history's sake. The principle is this, that it is not enough to be liberated from, from something, we must be liberated to something. It's not enough to be liberated from something, we must be liberated to something. A clean slate is no good if God does not replace it with a positive disposition for the good. I I think that, that in part this tells us of the need for more than just evangelism. The need for more than just evangelism. People don't just need to be evangelized, they need to be discipled. They need to be discipled. Um, As a young man, I went to evangelistic events with my father and there were all sorts of events where they would present the gospel and then say, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, raise your hand and come down to the front. And I remember two of my friends in particular going down. I was thrilled. I thought our youth group is about to grow, finally. And yet they didn't come to the youth group. They didn't come to church. They, They raised their hands when they were called to. They were converted, so they thought, and yet they were evangelized, but I see now that they were not discipled. It's not enough to be liberated from something. You have to be liberated to something. Israel has experienced kindness from Jesus. They have been liberated from these demons. These demons have been cast out. They've seen healing take place. There's, there's been incredible grace poured upon them. But if they want the benefits without the Savior, all of that will have just been window dressing. Forgiveness without discipleship. Christ, without, Christ as Savior, but not Christ as Lord. Using Christ for his benefits without coming to him and embracing him as the master of your life. Even if you've been forgiven of your sins emptied of your sin, your life needs to be filled up with something as well. A love for the good. A desire to live out what pleases God. As a Christian, you've been liberated to something, not just from something. The goal is not fire insurance. It's a new life in Christ. That's why Jesus in the Great Commission says that the mission is not getting people to pray the sinner's prayer or to say that they converted The mission is to make disciples. 
disciples are lifelong followers of Christ, not temporary users of Jesus. A disciple doesn't use Jesus. Jesus is not useful to a disciple. He is their their Lord. See, there's a world of, of difference between being a convert and being a disciple. The goal isn't converts. It is disciples. Something else we need to learn from this at a a personal level is the hatred that Satan has for God's people. He, He really desires to destroy us if he could. This is why we don't just get converted, but we we flee to Jesus on a daily basis. The Christian life, when begun, it's not finished. It's still a life of a spiritual warfare. That's what's going on. That's what all of life is meant to be characterized as. When you come to church, part of what you are doing is you are having the armor of God placed upon you so that you can go back out for another week as the fiery arrows get, sh- get shot at you. And sometimes they really land. And sometimes they really hurt. And so this is a, also a hospital for sinners. So there's all sorts of mixed metaphors going on here, right? This is the armory and the hospital. That's what the church of God is. Where does this make place us as Christians? We shouldn't think of ourselves as an empty house that's vulnerable to demons. I I want you to know that. Um, I know that as I was a young Christian, as a teenager, I was always afraid that I would get demon-possessed. I don't know what happened that made me afraid of that, but I was constantly afraid of it. I I lived in sort of circles that did speak of demonic activity as being very close by. Um, my, my, My father learned a lot of his spiritual life from word of faith preachers like Kenneth Copeland and, and Kenneth Hagin. And if you don't know those names, don't start listening to them. But, but he learned to, he, he would do things like he would walk through the house and if, if me and my siblings were, were bickering with each other, he would say, this house has a spirit of conflict or this house has a spirit of, of fighting and uh, I rebuke you, demon of, of, of fighting. You know, he would just talk, he would say that everything that was happening in our house was demonic and so I always had this sense that they must be all around pressing on me. What if I've got one, right? I would, I would be afraid of that, actually. And I remember finding a great deal of liberation when I was reading in the book of Romans, um, learning that I should not think of myself as vulnerable to demons. Because what does Paul tell us in the book of Romans? He says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And I remember understanding that if I belong to Jesus, then I have the Spirit of Christ. And to me, that was very revolutionary. It was a wonderful way that God blessed me by driving away that fear. So I don't know if you have a fear of demonic possession as a Christian, but I I want you to know that you should not fear that because you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of Christ. I think it's important that you understand yourself that way. Um. If you're a Christian, God's word says that you have the spirit. You do not have to fear the devil. You do not have to fear demons. Your house is not empty. It is filled up by God. That's an incredible comfort. But if we refuse to come to Christ, what's our house like? You see, the sad reality is the world is filled with vulnerable people who lack the protection of God. They want to live life on their own. They want to live it on their own terms. They want to live it as they wish. They don't want him to tell them what life is like or what their life should be like. And if we won't submit to God and if we won't come to Christ, then we don't have the Holy Spirit. And if we don't have the Holy Spirit and we don't live by God's power, 
then another spirit will come to define and control us. Is your house protected by the Lord Jesus? Calvin says it like this. He says, as soon as Christ calls us, a sharper and fiercer contest is prepared for us. Though he meditates, mediates the, de- meditates the destruction of all, and though the words of, of Peter apply to all without exception, that he goes about as a roaring lion and seeks whom he may devour, yet we, may plainly, we are plainly taught by these words of Christ that Satan views with deeper hatred and attacks with greater fierceness and rage those who have been rescued from his snares. Right? He, if you've been rescued from Satan's snares, he hates you more than he hates the others. This is Calvin still. Such an admonition, however, ought not to inspire us with terror, but to arouse us to diligent, keep diligent watch and to put on the spiritual armor that we may make a brave resistance. So the implication of this is not, uh, well, you're in big trouble because Satan has it in for you. The answer is we go to God and he's the one that protects us. Satan would destroy us if he could, but the Lord Jesus prays for us. Satan would sift us, but the Spirit of Christ protects us. We ought to keep a diligent watch, yes, but the Lord Jesus is our Savior. He's our protector. He's the guardian of the house. He's our security. In Christ Jesus, our house is clean, but it's not empty. So today, let's take Jesus' lesson to heart. Flee to Jesus. Repent of your sins and be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ that our house might not be found empty and ready for anyone other than the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is, it is easy for us to fixate on the sad reality of those listeners Jesus warned about here who did not follow the evidence where it led and they didn't take his warnings to heart. But I pray that you would give us tender hearts toward the Lord Jesus and that we would answer the call of Christ not only to have him as our Savior, not only to have him as as the one that forgives us, but to have him as our Lord. Would you open the hearts of people to hear your message and make us faithful to share the gospel of Jesus Christ generously. When people ask us questions, I pray that we would do our best to answer them but that we would leave the heart change to you, that we would remember, O Lord, that at the end of the day, these are not ultimately intellectual questions, but these are spiritual heart questions. So would you make us, give us softened hearts to believe what you say, but would you also help for us to keep perspective and to understand, Lord, the need to pray and the need for you to change the hearts of those we speak with. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.